Okay. Um, so I have a little, I got to set up what we're doing today. So, so in Romans, we've been studying through the letter. In chapter 6, Romans sort of turns a corner. Or, or you might think about it this way. You've been walking through this house of Romans. And you come in the front door and it's Paul's introduction. Then you get into the living room. And the living room is the first three chapters. And it's all about the doctrine of condemnation. Essentially, um, you know, he starts at the end of chapter 1. and says, oh, all you pagan Gentiles, y'all are, you know, you're, you're without excuse. And uh, you, you uh, exchange the truth for a lie. And it, so, you know, they're guilty. And then in chapter 2, he opens up and says, hey, you Jews, you're guilty too. And you're without excuse. In the beginning of chapter 3, man, the whole world's guilty. Nobody's righteous. Nobody has what they need to be able to stand rightly before God. And nobody can earn it. And you can't get it anywhere on your own. And so it is the doctrine of condemnation. We are all in a state of, of living lives that are condemned because we don't meet God's standard. Well, then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, the gospel shows up. And, and Paul begins to tell us what God has done through his son Jesus to reconcile us to the one that created us. To, to, to provide a righteousness so that we could stand before him. And, and it, as it turns out, it's not a righteousness we can earn or manufacture or go get anywhere. It is the righteousness of his son Jesus. It's the perfection and beauty of Jesus. And what Paul says God does is he takes that and he counts it to us, to those that believe. And it's all because of what Jesus did. Jesus died in our place lay buried in our grave, and then rose again to new life. And so what God does is He takes the act of His Son as, um, as that which justifies us who are sinners, and that those who believe in Jesus, who trust Jesus for what He's done, that gets applied to us. Now, we're not made righteous, but His righteousness gets counted for ours. And then in chapter 4, what he does is he said, listen, it's always been about faith. It's not about what you do or who you are, where you came from. It's about do you believe God? Do you trust God by grace through faith in what he's done through his son? And Abraham was always the example. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning of the New Testament and says, it's always been this way. And Abraham is the illustration in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, what Todd uh, talked about two weeks ago, what Fritz talked about last week, is it sort of this security. You didn't earn it, you can't lose it. God has sealed you. You have peace with Him. You, you, you're with Him. As Fritz said last week, you, you, you've, you've switched sides. You, you've, you've moved from the, from the team of Adam to the team of Jesus, and, and, and that's permanent. And you have this great assurance of your justification. The doctrine of condemnation, you come out of the living room into the kitchen, the doctrine of justification, how you're made right with God. Now, in chapter 6, what happens is we turn to the next room, and we are um, embarking upon Paul's discussion on the doctrine of sanctification. Condemnation, you deserve death. Justification, God has provided the way 
for you to be saved through his son Jesus. Now, the doctrine of sanctification is that justification applied to our life. That legal, judicial reality before God experientially being lived out in our lives. And here's the mistake so many believers make. It is our natural default. We think, okay, we're condemned. God's provided justification to save us. And so now what he's done is he's handed us the keys to the car and we're left to drive this thing. So, so he's, he's covered us with Christ. He's counted us right. Now what's happened is it's all up to me and I am supposed to, I'm supposed to grow in Christ. And I got my list of do's and my list of don'ts now because I'm a believer. And so I, I make my list and I'm checking it twice. And every day I get to the end of the day and I'm, I'm grading myself at how I did it. I made these, made these resolutions this morning. I, I, I vows and, res, you know, I resolve to do this. And yet I get to the end of the day. And I realize, you know, I didn't do any of that stuff. Paul is saying in Romans 7, I do all the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. What a wretched man I am. And what happens is, believers who are saved end up turning to a law of their own making. That I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to become. And the reality is, it's not what you do, it is what has been done. It is not what you do that defines you. It is whose you are that defines you. And so what Paul's going to say, so he's going to answer the beginning of Romans 6. There's a criticism that's been waged at Paul, and I'm sure he's heard it over and over again. And that is, Paul, if you preach this grace like you're preaching, it's going to get abused. If you keep saying things like you're saying about grace, that listen, it's not what you do, it's what Jesus has done. And you're saved by grace through faith. People are going to abuse that, Paul. And in fact, in Romans 5.20, the end of Romans 5, he says, listen, where sin increases, grace abounds. Super increases. So as you keep talking like that, Paul, people are going to abuse it. You need to give them the law. You need to tell them what not to do. And Paul will refuse to do that. And what he's going to do is he's going to answer this charge waged against him. Not with a footnote, not with the law. He's going to answer it with more grace. He's going to double down. So I want you to see this. I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 14. We're going to go back and we're going to talk about it. And um, then we'll just have it all square. Maybe the hardest two paragraphs in the whole Romans. But here we go, all right? You ready? Here he says, Romans chapter 6, beginning the doctrine of justification. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we'd been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved by sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present the mem- your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as, ri- as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. It's the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, I pray you do what only you can do. Take these words, accomplish what you are sending them forth to do, and that they would not return void. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's answering this question. He continues to hear because what Paul will say is he, he'll, he's, he's giving the gospel. He's telling you this great news. It's the great news. It's radically great news. And there are ears that will hear this great news. And they will zero in and hear this, you know, listen, more sin than more grace. And it's the kind of ears that then get interpreted by a their mind that says, listen, sin must be good because it leads to more grace. That's always the danger when you're preaching the gospel. It's always the danger when you're talking about the gospel, the gospel of grace. In fact, I might argue it's the necessary danger. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor and theologian, he famously said this. He said that a very good test of gospel preaching is that it leads to being accused of promoting irresponsible living. The churchy word for that is licentiousness or antinomianism, which is what Paul has been accused of, anti-law. Licentiousness, what it means is it's this lack of legal or moral restraint. And restraint is the key word there. They're saying to Paul, you you can't get rid of all the restraints, Paul. you you got to restrain because if you don't, people will then say, well, nothing restrains me. I'm free to do whatever my heart desires with no consequences. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, if my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it's not the gospel. In other words, if grace doesn't have the potential to be abused, it doesn't have the power to transform. So that's 
That's, that's the way of, of grace. It's the nature of grace. But in contrast to ears that hear, listen, I have no restraints. I can do whatever I want. I, you know, I'm going to exploit and abuse grace. In contrast to that, there's another set of ears that hears the same message Paul is, is, is delivering this good news. But instead of it something to be exploited, what they hear is they hear a hope of deliverance. What they hear is they hear a hope of acceptance and a, and, and, and a power of, of transformation that those ears that are being saved, the gospel of grace comes like this fresh spring water in the middle of the desert that they've been living in. It's long-awaited invitation to come home. Home to a place that you, you know you belong, but you You've never seen it. You're not even really sure if it exists, but you feel the, the ache and the longing. Come home. Notice, Paul will not answer this with a footnote. He will not, he will not give you the satisfaction of, a, of the list of human restraints that cause you to grow in Christ. He is going to give you something radically different. He's going to go on in verse 2, by no means it's the strongest way to say no, or, you know, how can you still, uh, how can you who died to sin still live in it? And essentially he's like, this is insanity and it's an impossibility. It's insanity to think that way. And it's an impossibility to live that way. Now, I know what you're thinking. So, wait, wait a minute, I must be doing this wrong. Because I, I realized, Paul said, you know, I died to sin, so Jesus died to sin. And, and then he's going to argue that we're united with Jesus, so we've died to sin. And, and yet somehow you realize you, you didn't get the memo on that. Because maybe an hour ago you were driving to church and you had all your little kids in the car. And you being a sanctified father lost your absolute mind. <laughs> right? I've been there. It's like, this is the holy day. We're going to go do the Jesus thing. Can't you just act right? And then like bad words come out of my mouth. And I'm like, it's Sunday. I can't believe I did that. What does he mean? You, you've died to sin. How can you still live in it? So, let me take a shot at this. And, and so, it's an example. It's, it's not a, it, it breaks down. I know where it breaks down. If you press this too far, it's no good. But it, just to give you a picture of maybe what we're talking about. Imagine this. Imagine you're lost. In fact, you're lost, lost. You're, you're so lost, you can't remember where it is you were coming from or where it is you were going. You've been lost so long. Now you're alone. And... Your identity, your whole way, the only thing you know now because you've been lost so long is just survival in the wild. It's all you know. But then one day, all of a sudden, a map appears. And it turns out it's a map to where you were always longing to go. A map that, that, that the deepest part of you it leads you to where you've always wanted to go, that you knew you were supposed to be, but didn't know the way and forgotten that you were even going there. 
Now, the minute that you get the map, here's the, here's the reality. You're not lost anymore. You're now on a journey. The minute you get the map, your identity has changed. You're no longer a lost wanderer. You are now a purposed journeyman or woman. You're you're headed somewhere. No, I'm not lost anymore. I'm en route. And and so in in, in some ways, you, you, you think about it this way. That's the transformation that happens. You're no longer a slave to lostness and despair and, and survival in the wild. You're now a person headed home. You could also say it this way, if you wanted to. Let's press it a little bit. You've, you've really, you've become a slave to the map. You cling to it. You follow it. You hope in it. Because it's going to lead you where it is you want to go. But it is a welcomed slavery. Man, I'm clinging to this. I'm never letting it go. It's my hope. It's where I'm going. And so now you, maybe you're still in the desert. And it, it, there's harshness. And there's hunger. And there's suffering. But, but you can endure that. Because you know where you're going. You may still be hungry and tired and filthy, but you're not lost and aimless. You are now a new person with a new disposition and a new resources and purpose and hope, and you have this identity and a new reality, and you still may lose your way from time to time. But you don't lose the fact that you know where it is you're going. And while you're free on one hand, free from hopelessness and and wandering and and lostness, you you now have a new restraint, a welcomed one, a a true guide and all the sacrifices that come with it. So you you cling to the map. So so think about it this way. Think of the map as your union with Christ. Paul will say over and over again in his epistles, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You know what else he says? Christ is in you. That, that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And that way, and when God sees you, not only does he legally, judiciously see Jesus and that get, all that Jesus is gets counted to you, but that your experience now is that you are in Christ and He is in you. You've become one with Christ. And, and, and oh, it's hard to see and it's hard to experience. And the ways we go about trying to experience it is, okay, well, I'm going to stop doing all these things and I'm going to start doing all these things. And then you grade yourself at night and you always fail. And we begin to base our justification on how we're doing in sanctification. You ever gotten to the end of the day after the end of a season and you wonder, I wonder if I'm even saved. I can't do any of the things I want to do. Doing all the things I don't want to do. And we get it backwards. We begin to base our our justification on our sanctification. Paul says, no, you don't do that. Your identity is in Christ. Your sanctification is grounded in your justification. Begin with who you are. You're in Christ. So, Galatians 2.20, he says it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, 
but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who left me and gave himself for me. It's freedom from sin, freedom to Christ, freedom from lostness, freedom to being found. So then he says in, in 3 and 4, we read this a couple of weeks ago when we did baptism here out in, the, out in the front between the services. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now listen to me. Paul is not speaking in metaphor here. He is saying this actually, really, truly happened to you. You died with Christ the minute you trusted with him. You were raised with him. And when we do water baptism, that's the metaphor. That's the picture of the reality that's taking place. One guy describes it this way. It's like the hand in the shadow. You put your hand in the sun, cast the shadow. The hand's the reality. The shadow is just a symbol of the hand. The water baptism, that's the shadow. The reality Paul's talking about here. When you trusted Jesus, you died with him. And you were raised with him. That's grace. You say, well, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, he's going to tell us a little bit. Well, we've got to reckon it. We've got to consider it. We've got to think it over. We've got to preach it to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of it. Louis Perry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, spent his last, he lived at 81 years old, spent his last uh, you know, couple of semesters teaching systematic theology from his wheelchair one of his last classes, he told his students, he says, I've been on this earth for 81 years and I've walked with Christ and I am only now just beginning to understand grace. And then he adds, and it's magnificent. This is what Paul is talking about. He says this, he goes on in, 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 in verse 5, he says, for, for you've been united with him in a death like his. We certainly should be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with uh, Christ, we believe that we'll also be raised with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Our old self was crucified with him. The death of the old Man, the old woman. Paul says this is an established fact when you trust Jesus. And that is no longer your identity. The old self has been crucified. You have been raised to new life, a new self. You know how the old self becomes an old self? When you got a new self. Because the old self is your existence the sum total of who you are before you trust Christ. And the very best that we could do was to take the law and go, okay, I'm going to take the law, I'm going to try to do the law, I'm going to try to make the old self 
a better old self. And it's, it's an impossible task. Wrought with failure. And yet what happens, like Paul says in Galatians to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who can put a spell on you? You began this thing in your justification by grace through faith, trusting in what Christ has done. All of a sudden now you think it's something you're doing? It's not. The old self is, is all that you were before salvation. But in verse 7, he says, but now you've been set free. That word set free is justified. Legally, he's saying, sin no longer has legal right over you. That has been canceled. You're a new man now. You're a new woman now. Ephesians 4 Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have been set free from sin through the death, through death in Christ. You have been made alive to God through resurrection in Christ. Now, Charles Ryrie in his Ryrie Study Bible, he, he makes this great distinction. Death is separation. Death is not extinction. And he gives these four examples. Physical death is the separation of body from the spirit. Spiritual death is the separation of a person from God. That's how we're all born. The second death, Revelation 20, is eternal separation from God. Death to sin is separation from the ruling power of sin in one's life. You have been separated from the power of sin in your life. But here's the deal. You have not been separated from the presence of sin. It is still ever present. But it no longer rules over you. That's what he means in verse 10. Once for all, sin can never claim authority over you. Again, its legal rights have been canceled. Stuart Briscoe tells a story in his commentary on this. He's a 20th century guy, British accent, awesome to listen to. But he tells about when he was drafted into the, um, the Royal Marines during the Korean War. And, and, and in being drafted, what, what happens is he gets assigned to the sergeant, and the sergeant was a terrible man. And he'd run up and down the barracks, and he'd, um, he'd degrade everyone around him and put, you know, the fear of the sergeant in everyone. They dreaded to see him come because they never could do it right, could never march right, never stand straight enough. And he talks about he did not know how much that affected him. He didn't know how dominant that man had become in his life until the day that he was released from the Marines. And he's, and he's got these papers of, of release. I mean, his obligations are no more. And he's clutching it in his hand and decides he's going to celebrate by putting his other hand in his pocket. Slouch a little bit and start whistling. 
And then all of a sudden what he sees is he sees that sergeant come walking up towards him. His immediate thought was fear. His immediate thought was, oh, I've got to stand straight up. But then what he said is he, he began to reckon with himself. He began to consider the reality. He was no longer under that sergeant's rule. And so instead of standing straight up, he put his other hand in his pocket, began to whistle, and skipped right by him because he had no authority over him. There was nothing that sergeant could do about it. That's why he says in verse 11, Paul does, So you must consider yourself, reckon yourself, remind yourself, meditate upon this. You're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul's answer, no, you can't continue to live in sin because that's not who you are. The sinner is dead. You're dead. That's why it makes no sense. Your identity is completely and fundamentally changed. When you, before you were a believer and you sinned, you just sinned, it was perfectly in line with your identity. As a believer, when you sin, it is in contrast, out of sync with your identity and who you are. But you must reckon it. You must consider it. You must remember it. You must preach it to yourself. You must believe it. You know, what he's talking about is this great privilege. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. We've been given this great privilege. And lots of commentators illustrate it this way. It's like you've been given this huge trust fund. But unless you actually make a deposit out of it, unless you actually reckon that, oh yeah, that's mine. It does you no good. We must count ourselves dead to sin. Because if we don't act on it, we won't realize that in our experience. Lloyd-Jones, one more time, he says this, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you're no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through His Word that if we are in Christ, we're no longer in Adam. And we're no longer under the reign and the rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. So realize it. Reckon it, He says. St. Augustine, 4th century saint, and tells a story. So, so before he's saved, I mean, he's, 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 he's wildly, famously promiscuous. But when he came to Christ, his life just it, it changed. So some of you know a life that has radically changed like that. 
And so he's walking along the street one day, and one of his old mistresses begins to, to call out to him, Hey, Augustine! Tries to get him to, to, to come up and to, you know, to spend time with her. And Augustine says, Thank you very much, but no, thank you. So the mistress thinks, Oh, well, maybe Augustine didn't recognize me. Maybe he didn't know who I am. Hey, Augie, it's me. And he says back, yes, but it's no longer me. That's what's happened to us. We have a new identity. We are new in Christ. Now, I want you to see something, and then we're going to close, and we're going to go home. And, but look at chapter, chapter 6, verse 14. This is fascinating. I told you before, Paul, he's not going to go to legalism. He's not going to put a footnote on grace. He's going to double down and say, the answer is more grace. How do you change? It's not by what you do. It's because of whose you are. Now, look at what he says. In verse 14, he says this, For sin will have no dominion over you. And then you think that he's going to say this, because you've died to sin. Which is true, but that's not what he says. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You know what he means? The minute you make laws for yourself, the minute you begin to go, okay, I've been justified, sanctification's up to me, I got I got you know, this extreme... You know, Ross makeover that I'm going to start doing now. You'll fail. You'll, You'll live a life as a frustrated, failing believer. And you'll be like, what happened to me? Why can't I do any of this stuff? It's because the law was never meant to transform you. Only grace can transform you. And grace is only something that God does. Only Grace has that power. And you cannot count for one minute on the law to save you. See, what you're doing there is you're trying to survive your own salvation. And Paul says, no, 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 you got to die. You can't survive salvation. You must die and become new. You have to move out of the, you know, charting your progress and how am I doing based upon what you're doing and remember and reckon it is not about how you're doing it is about whose you are you're no longer a slave you're no longer defined by your performance you're no longer valuable because of what you can do listen a slave's value to his owner is grounded in usefulness what can be gained Your worth is based upon what you do and the return you bring. And when you're no longer useful, you're expendable. But your union with Christ is entirely different. You're rendered a treasure. And your value is now ascribed to you. It is reckoned to you. It is not earned. You're priceless, bought with a price And what someone pays for something determines its true value. And you were bought with the blood of God's Son. 
and you're delighted in. And you are enjoyed by God because that's what a treasure is. It's not for what you can do for God. He doesn't need anything from you. He delights in you because you're His treasure. I'm going to illustrate it this one way and then see if that can help. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, beginning in verse 44, and just for a few verses, tells two quick parables. The first of those is just one verse, and he tells this parable about a guy who finds a treasure hidden in a field. Remember this? And then what that guy does is he goes away, sells everything he has, buys the field so he can get the treasure. And then he says, oh yeah, and then there's a guy who's a pearl merchant. And his whole job, a pearl merchant, what you did is you bought low and you sold high. You bought pearls and you sold them at a profit. But he comes across this one pearl, a pearl of great price. And now this guy's no longer interested in being a pearl broker. He's interested in possessing a treasure, so he sells everything he has, everything, to buy and possess the pearl. And see, when we hear that, there's this thing that goes to our mind and goes, okay, Jesus is our treasure, Jesus is our pearl. Now I've got to sell everything and sacrifice everything. And listen, we feel that. Those are right things. He is the treasure. There is nothing that compares to him. He is beyond all comparison. Everything else Paul says is rubbish compared. And yet we hear that parable with some kind of a mandate that says, okay, I've got to go sell all I have. I've got to go, I've got to go do all this. I've got to go do all that. I've got to make Jesus my treasure. I've got to do it. And we feel it. We want it. We desire it. If it were only that easy, right? If what was so clear in our minds only translated to the truth of our hearts. Let me say this. It's not because we don't want it to be our reality. If you're a believer, listen, I believe you do. And the truth of God, it resonates deep in us. We know the value of the treasure. Or at least we want to. I mean, we get it. Israel got it. You know what the story of Israel is? They made this pledge over and over again. They put away their grumbling. They pledged their hearts and their minds and their strength to God. It wasn't long before they didn't do that anymore. I'm putting away the idols. Never doing that again. Until they did. Over and over and over and And they'd offer their sacrifices in humility until they didn't. And the surprise about human history, the surprise about humanity, the the surprise about you is not your faithlessness towards God. It's no surprise. You know what the great surprise is? The surprising thing is God's enduring, unending, unflinching, unchanging faithfulness and love and care and desire for His people. See, here's the thing. The truth of the treasure and the pearl are this. 
We'll never understand the value of the treasure of the gospel of Jesus until we understand that it's Jesus who's the worker in the field. It's Jesus who's the merchant that finds the pearl. We'll never understand the great value of the treasure that Jesus is and the sacrifice it is worth until we understand that for Jesus, we're the treasure. You're the treasure. You're the pearl. That he bought the field, that he gave everything up to possess you, to free you, and to claim you as his own. He gave all he is so that you would become his. And it's not until you come to grips with that love. It's not until you come to grips with the sacrifice of your king and the grace of your God and realize that, oh, my identity is in Jesus. My identity is that I'm his treasure. The one whose name is above all names and at the name and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. He's the one that sacrificed everything to claim you. You were the treasure. You were the object of his affection. Let me tell you something. To reckon that grace, to, to own that, to claim that that is true, that this is not a metaphor, it is true. I died with him because he died my death was buried with him because he laid in my grave. And I was raised to new life with him. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. And when we get that, we, we can put the law away. And when we're faced with temptation, and you'll be faced with temptation. You reckon, you remember, I am bought with Christ's blood. I don't belong to myself. You remind yourself, you reckon I have been delivered out of the domain of sin. It no longer reigns over me. And though sin may be too powerful, seem too powerful to resist, it's not the case. You're a child of God, and you can exercise the authority over that because you are in Christ. Go back and read verse 8 and 9 again. And... You remind yourself, you reckon to yourself, I was saved by Christ specifically, so I would not sin. Titus chapter 2, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good, not to earn any standing with him but because of who we are, whose we are. See, it is the gospel. It is the grace of God in His Son, Jesus, that provides the power and the incentive to, to live out this sanctification, to become in experience, in our experience, who we are in Christ, to become who we already are 
in Christ. You're not trying to become something. You're not making yourself something. You're becoming who you are in Christ. Now, he's going to tell us about the Holy Spirit and how we do this and how we... But listen, it's not up to you. You're reckoning, remembering, meditating on, preaching to yourself, I am in Christ. And He is in me. And so we long to, we love to be those who, he says in Romans 6.13, offer ourselves to God because we know we have been brought from death to life. Do you know that? Have you been? Have you trusted Jesus? Is the old gone? Is the new come? 